lot of life can be packed into two small syllables, 10 years. In the span of a decade, we watch children grow up, we welcome new friends into our lives, and we transition from one life stage to another. 10 years ago, Scottsdale Bible was approaching 50 years as a church. We were on a precipice, asking God to strengthen and broaden our impact for Christ as we search for a new pastor. That's when God sent us you, Pastor Jamie, along with your wife, Kim, and three teen children, Hannah, Abby, and Paul. Now, 10 years later, we marvel at what God has accomplished in and through our church under your leadership. And today, we want to celebrate you. Jamie, God gave you a vision for how a commitment to grace could transform lives. You shared that vision with us, and you led us to a renewed emphasis on life-changing relational grace. By teaching us God's Word and transparently sharing the Spirit's work in your own life, you've taught us to see our spouses, our children, and our friends differently. You've inspired us to extend God's grace to others and be more courageous to reach our culture. And people have been drawn to Christ because of it. Under your leadership, Jamie, we've become a multi-campus church, and through Compelled by Grace, we added significant new spaces to welcome hundreds of children, students, and adults to our church. We've also partnered with other local congregations to reach new neighborhoods in our city for Christ. Your passion for sharing the gospel overseas, especially in countries who have lost their faith roots, has led us to develop new global partnerships in Western Europe, in Palestine, in Mexico, and around the world. You've also empowered SBC's longstanding commitment to our Christian schools in Tanzania and to our 48 different global partners. Through these efforts, God is mobilizing SBC to canvas the world with love, compassion, and hope. Jamie, because of your leadership and vision, we've continued to build strong local ministry partnerships in our inner city and around the state. This church is being the hands and feet of Jesus with children, families, the hurting, and the marginalized across our city in unique and effective ways. Pastor Jamie, God has done far more in and through Scottsdale Bible over the past 10 years of your leadership than we could share in this short video. As we look back, we see God brought you to SBC to strengthen our legacy and bring us into a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Thousands have grown in faith and trusted Jesus as their savior here, and we rejoice with you in the unfolding stories of redemption, rescue, and restoration. We're so blessed to have a wise, humble, and transparent leader in you, our pastor. As we honor you now, we give thanks to God and confidently declare that by the Spirit's work, our best days are still ahead of us. To our friend, our pastor, congratulations on 10 years, Pastor Jamie. Thank you, Scottsdale Bible Church. You may be seated. Uh, good morning and welcome to uh, now. We're welcoming our venues and campuses and those who are online viewing us. And we just want to take a few minutes and uh, I'd like to say a few words and then we as elders are going to pray for Kim and for Jamie. The first thing I'd like to remind you all about in case you've forgotten is Jamie and Kim agreed to move their young family from the Midwest to here in order to do something which was incredibly risky. 
It didn't feel that way necessarily to us, but a wise man, Jamie's father, actually counseled him against taking this job. And you know why? It's really, really difficult to follow a senior pastor who had been here for 25 successful years. The success rate for pastors who follow someone in that setting is actually very, very low. And so they had immense courage and trust in the Lord that he was in this in order to come and to join us, and we're grateful for that. That courage has continued. We were a different body. We were a different place than we were 10 years ago. And that is in large measure to Jamie's vision and leadership. You know, what we see go on on the weekend here is like, church is like an iceberg. What's above the water is what happens on the weekend. What we don't see below the water is really where the bulk of the iceberg is or where the bulk of the ministry and the important things happen. Jamie provides us with terrific vision and leadership for our pastoral team, for our elders, as well as the congregation. And he does an excellent job, not merely on Sundays and Saturday nights, but throughout the week leading us as a congregation. We're grateful. Yeah. We, and I'm sure like you, are deeply grateful for the way uh, Jamie has led us through his transparency in his life in, from the pulpit here in ways that I don't know about you, but I've never experienced before from a senior pastor, being willing to be so vulnerable and transparent about his own life in a way that helps us to relate to the gospel and relate to Jesus in ways I haven't been able to before, and I suspect some of you, many of you, if not all of you as well. And lastly, we're just deeply grateful for his refocusing us on the grace of our Lord, that, that we hold both truth and grace because Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And as we have focused on in, in grace and living not just the grace that he has given to us through, through our Savior Jesus, but then living that grace relationally in, in, in transformational relationships, it has changed our church and it is changing the impact our church is having. So with that, I'd like to call our elders up. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna pray for Kim and Jamie right now. And uh, we've got quite a few here on the service this morning. Go ahead, Bill. Let's pray. Father, it is uh, such an honor uh, to be here celebrating Jamie, and, uh, and we're glad to do it. But Lord, what this really is, is a celebration of your provision for Scottsdale Bible Church over these last 10 years. Uh, we were in a precarious spot uh, when we were searching for Jamie, uh, but you knew exactly what we needed. You knew who the right man was, and you kept us uh, from sabotaging that once we brought here mm. in our weaknesses and in our frailties and our agendas. Uh, you helped us put all those aside and, and make it work with this man and, and cut a path for him uh, so that he could be successful. So Lord, uh, all that comes from you and all that was uh, your vision uh, and, and we're thankful for that. And we're so thankful for our pastor who is a humble man uh, a man who is vulnerable in front of this congregation and a man who clearly identifies himself uh, as a fellow traveler. He is our teacher, he is our leader, but he's a fellow traveler and a fellow follower of you uh, on a difficult journey that we all travel, uh, struggling with our sin natures and, and trying to understand you more clearly and just 
bearing with this world and waiting for the next. Uh, we're thankful that you put Jamie at our head uh, for these 10 years, and we look forward uh, to what you bring us in the future. And Lord, uh, as I also join my brother Bill and pray on behalf of the elders in this entire congregation, Lord, we come before you humbly and with um, hearts of gratitude and thankfulness for this dear man and his family. Lord, 10 years ago, you knew that we were seeking our next leader. You knew the cry of our heart, Lord. We were seeking the man that you had already chosen. We were asking for discernment and you gave us Jamie, a man after your own heart, a man full of grace and truth, a man who has opened the pages of his life. So as the Apostle Paul wrote to that first century church, follow me as I follow Christ, we have an example of a godly man to follow. We thank you for Pastor Jamie and for the provision that you provided in him. We pray now as we pause this weekend to celebrate and thank you. We pray for your hand of protection and mercy over his ministry in the days ahead, over his marriage. Kim, continue to make it strong. Just continue to bless his children, Hannah, Abby, and Paul. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And Jamie and Kim, we look forward to celebrating in 10 years, your 20th anniversary. <laughs>Last night, Jamie asked me when we were done, do I want to speak? And I said, no, absolutely not. And I was up half the night last night, and I have spoke more in the last weekend than I have in the last 10 years. So I'm going to ask you to listen up, because I really do believe that what I'm about to say has huge impact. 10, 15 years ago, at least, Jamie sat on a hill with me, and we dreamed God's dreams of what our ministry would look like. And at that time, I heard a an audible, audible memory verse, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I do believe that it is Christ in you that when you show Christ, God's glorified. And so I prayed that for Jamie, and I also prayed for him that God would increase our sphere of influence. And since that time, my husband has sat on St. Mary's Food Bank. He's come here. He's preached at Moody Bible Church. You got the real deal. And the real deal is actually... You know, he gets up all the time, and, and my press release is greatly exaggerated. I don't know why God chose us. We're average. But we prayed for that sphere of influence, and he's used us incredibly mightily. And I have started praying in my dreams for you, that you would start to pray, God, use my sphere of influence. Because if you do, I want to be part of that church. Thanks. So. All right. Thank you, baby. You take that with you. All right. Well, uh, I'm just going to spend a few minutes responding to this because uh, it would be awkward if I said, let's pray and uh, go right into the Bible. You know, um, it's going to sound like I'm deflecting, um, you know, the celebration we're having here today, but I'm really not. When they asked me, and they asked my permission for everything that goes on around here, when they asked me if we could celebrate 10 years of my ministry here, I, I said yes with, with one caveat, and, and Tracy Goble, who put this together, knew the caveat right away, and that's that 
this would be more about God than me, that it would be more about God than our church, that we'd be celebrating what the Lord does through us together, uh, as my wife just said, when we dream big dreams and submit our lives to him. And so in a very real way, if we're celebrating what the Lord has done over the last 10 years, and we are, um, you know, I came here 10 years ago, and I don't mean this arrogantly or condescendingly, but I, I just came here as me. And, and Tim's right, I'm, I'm somewhat average. I'm smarter than most of you, but I'm somewhat average, and <laughs> I've taken the tests. And, uh, but, but all joking aside, I mean, I, I love God, I love his church, and, and, and I do have a dream and a vision for what the church can be, and we've been after that for 10 years. But you know, somebody once said that, you know, the real test of a leader, and some of you leadership types will get this, the real test of a leader is to look behind them and see if anybody's following right? Lots of people claim to be leaders, but if nobody's following, then a leader you are not. And you all had a choice. Our elders had a choice. Our staff had a choice on whether or not you would say, yeah, I think that the Lord is working through Jamie's vision, or no, I don't believe that the Lord is working through his vision. And by the way, it happens in churches all the time throughout America, where, you know, well-meaning lay people will, will look at, at the pastor or the, or, the, or the leader and say, yeah, I, I buy what that person is saying about where God's taking us, or I don't. And, and, and the miracle is, the beauty is, is that there have been thousands of you here and at Cactus and at Venue and Chapel and even many who are online today because they're away that said, yeah, I, I think the Lord is up to something here at Scottsdale Bible Church. That so when we say our best days are ahead of us, we're not kidding. And that we're trusting God together for big things. And, and, and so really, if we're going to give any credit, if you will, to those who have trusted God, it's all of you. And I can't say that strong enough. As all of you, especially in the earlier days when we were in some pretty rough waters of transition that said, I can weather this storm because I have a vision of what the Lord is doing here and I'm in it for the long haul. Nothing touches my heart more, you guys need to know this, than when I look out here or I envision our other venues and I see faces of people that were here 10 years ago and that could have easily said, and some did, we had hundreds that, that are not with us today, that just said, nah, I, I'm not gonna hang in there through this. Uh, but many of you did, and you did because you love God, you did because you love your church, you did because you, know, you thought that where God was leading us was, was a right and good thing. And, uh, and, and today, we're celebrating those 10 years, and I wanna thank you for allowing me to be your pastor and for believing enough in what the Lord is doing in and through me and our elders to, uh, to be incredibly supportive with your time, talents, and treasures. And I really do look forward to 10 more years. I mean, I can never predict what the Lord you know, will do. I'm not planning on going anywhere. I wanna be very quick to say that. Uh, I'm not planning on dying either, but you never know when the Lord uh, is going to move. And I mean that sincerely. All of our lives are in his hands and uh, I'm following him every day, as I hope you are, and I'm very excited to see where he's going to take us. So with that said, uh, why don't we bow right now and do one of my favorite things, and let's pray for our time in the Word. Father, uh, indeed, this is an exciting day. Uh, these dear people might not know this, but it was 10 years ago this day, the 22nd, that I landed here in Phoenix uh, and, and started my uh, work here at Scottsdale Bible Church. It was a Tuesday. And, uh, and I'm so grateful for that day. And God, I thank you that we can celebrate really not a, a person, but you 
and the movement of your Holy Spirit and the activity of the Trinity in and through your bride, your church, as we submit to you. And God, it's not always easy to do so. There's lots of the flesh that gets involved even in church work. There's an underbelly that's not pretty. But God, you the miracle is you use us anyways, and we're grateful for that. And so I pray, God, that even in the midst of all the mess that exists right now in this room and in the other venues, that as we turn to your word, that you might give us wisdom and understanding, empower this time by your spirit. God, there's some that really need to hear what we're going to talk about today. May it penetrate their hearts and minds as only you can do, I pray. In Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So we're in a uh, series here right now, if you're visiting with us for the first time today, called Search and Rescue. It's a short three-week series in which we're talking about how God, who is alive and well on planet Earth, loves to engage in searching out and rescuing lost ones. It's something that a lot of people don't understand about God that he really does love to help those in need. He loves to help people who are lost. The Bible is filled with words like light and guidance and life and redemption and words like that. God is in the business, as the Old Testament says, of restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. And so we're taking a look at this idea of God being about the search and rescue process. And we've broken it down into three simple weeks. The first week we talked about how we are called to join God's rescue efforts. That's the parable of the lost sheep where a sheep wanders from the flock, God leaves the 99, goes after that one, and basically asks you and I, do we have the same heart that God has? Are we willing to see that one lost sheep as actually more important in the moment than the 99 who haven't strayed? And if you are, you're off to a good start. Then last week, we looked at how to become the rescue efforts. That's the parable or the story of the lost coin. Remember that, how this woman lost a coin, and, and, and this woman represents the church, and she went on an all-out search for this lost coin. And the message that Jesus had for you and I is, are we willing as the church to not just join God's heart, but actually roll up our sleeves and become a part of the rescue efforts as God wants to use us as a church? And then today we get to the third story in Luke chapter 15, the chapter we've been in in this series. And Luke, this story is probably one of the most popular stories that Jesus ever told. I mean, even people who hardly ever darken the doors of a church know this story. It's the story of the prodigal son or the story of the lost son. And what we're going to see today, and I, and I hope this rocks your world, I really do, because it's very much a, an important time for our church, is that Jesus is going to challenge us to either identify with one or two people in this story. He's going to challenge us to either identify with the lost son and choose to stop rebelling against God and making a mess of our lives and come home to him in personal relationship. That's the first identity challenge he's going to give us. Or secondly, if you're somebody who's already come home, he's going to challenge you to identify with the father and be grace-filled enough to make your life about receiving lost ones home. It's two characters that you and I can all easily understand and relate to, a lost son 
or a receptive father. And Jesus is going to challenge us to identify with one or the other of those two characters. Now, to best understand and get what Jesus is talking about in this story, I want to break it down, as I often do, into bite-sized chunks and understand the different movements of this story that most Americans are familiar with. And there are three movements when you look closely at the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And the first movement is what we're going to call rebellion. Rebellion. So look at how Jesus begins this story in Luke 15. It says, And he, Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them, And not too many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Uh, Now, uh, track the action going on here, because this really is an amazing story. The son asks, he packs, he departs, and he squanders, right? Like, those are the four things going on here. Asks, packs, departs, and squanders. You got this wealthy Jewish landowner. We know that this father is wealthy because in that culture back then, to have your home or land be called an estate really meant something. I guess it would mean something today. I don't personally call my house on Mission Lane an estate. Maybe you call your house that. Some of you live in PV or something, but, but most people wouldn't call their house an estate. This guy has got an estate, and he has day laborers, and he has servants, and, and then it describes even a certain aspect of this guy's uh, you know, um, um, assets. He has fine robes and expensive rings and really nice shoes. These were all in things indicative of money and success back then. And he's blessed with two sons. The younger of the two then asked for the share of the estate while the father was still alive. Now pause on that. I don't know how you function with your old man, but if I asked my dad for my share of the inheritance now before he's dead, I would hear some of those swear words out of him that I haven't heard from in years. I mean, I guess it's the prerogative of a parent to give some of their inheritance early if they want to, but it's not the prerogative of the kid to ask for it. Not today, and by the way, especially not back then. Because back then, in that Hebrew-laden culture that the New Testament was in, by asking your father for his estate, you're essentially saying, I wish you were dead. That's what you're saying. You're dead to me, and I want my dough now. And we don't know why, but for some reason, the the father decides to give this money to his younger son. Probably not half of the estate, because more would go to the older son in that culture than the younger, but it would have been a very sizable amount of money. And we assume that the son's motive for wanting to do this, now this is really important, is that he probably thought life would be better without the burdens of home and the control of his father. I know it's hard to imagine a son thinking like that, but just go with me on that. This this young son who thought he knew better than anybody else thought that the home was rather confining and that he wanted to be out from under the home. So the father graciously gives him the estate, and you'll notice that two things happen, and this is important to the plot of the story. 
First, the son goes to a distant country. Did you notice that there? A distant country. The reason that's important is that any Jew hearing this story 2,000 years ago, and Jesus spoke primarily to a Jewish audience uh, at the, in, this, in this chapter here, uh, they would immediately interpret that as a Gentile country. Because Israel is a rather confined space, and so a distant country would be a Greco-Roman country or an Assyrian country or something like that. Point being, uh, away from Jewish customs, away from Jewish values, uh, away from all the things that would keep a young man rather safe and secure. And sure enough, the second thing happens here is that this kid squanders the money, squanders his estate with loose living, (laughs) Uh, loose living is simply be translated today, wine, women, and song. Uh, this guy just, picture a guy going into a casino and, and having a big lump of money and then going to the slot machines and then the blackjack table and then the roulette table and, and then back to the slot machines until all the money was gone. And that's what this guy did, metaphorically speaking. And just so we're really clear here, because we're going to move on and put this together here in a minute, I would submit to you that this story Jesus told 2,000 years ago is a relatively common thing in this fallen world. I think that's what makes this story so well known. I mean, take away the asking for the inheritance part, and you got a lot of people today, even maybe many of us at times, who are, in, who are in relatively safe and nurturing environments and due to, say, going off to college or having a midlife crisis or going through some catastrophic change like a job loss or the loss of a loved one, we leave our safe environment to pursue pleasures and fulfillment that we know intuitively are at best risky and at worst sinful and wrong of themselves. It's a pretty common story in this fallen world of ours. And and if you can get that at all, we're right now bumping up against what would be a really good definition of spiritual rebellion. And, And this is it. This is what Jesus is teaching us here, that spiritual rebellion occurs when somebody creates distance from God built upon a false belief that life will be more fulfilling without him. You see, that's really what's going on with this younger son when you think about it. This younger son truly believed that life for him would be better without the father in the picture. And so he packs up and he leaves home and he distances himself from the father. And even though we're going to see in a second here, it's a false belief that the son really believes that this is true, that life will be more fulfilling with the distance. And that is the definition of rebellion. And my point is, guys, before we move on to, to the second movement here, is that as I just hinted to before, people do this all the time in our world today, and we just don't label it for what it is. I mean, people leave the confines of a focus on God or even a relationship with God, and they leave the confines of a life that has the direction of his word or the safety of obedience to him or the fellowship of other believers, 
And they honestly think by going off the deep end <laughs> that life will be more fulfilling for them, that they can be happier without God in their lives. You're saying who? Well, it's the businessman who feels that with God at the center of his life, it just might cost him that needed promotion because he won't be as aggressive and it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Or it's the salesman who thinks that with God at the center of his life, he just might have to be honest in trying to sell something to somebody. And so, hey, I don't want to complicate things with God. And so they distance themselves from God because they think their business world will be better without him. Or I've seen this one a thousand times. How about the artist or musician who feels that the confines of God's word and his value system just might stifle their creativity? I've had young people say that to me for years. They said, no, nah, you don't understand. I want to express myself and I want to do this. And man, if I live with this Judeo-Christian value system, it's going to stifle who I really am. And I sit there and go, really? Because who you really are is made in God's image. And you're made to relate to him as father and friend. So that's who you really are. And so you're deceiving yourself if you think that you could have more creativity without God in the picture. Or, or how about this one? I, I see this a lot as well. It's the athlete who senses that submitting to Christ in personal relationship might take the edge off of his or her anger that drives them in excelling in their sports. Or this is the most classic. <laughs> how about the student? who goes off to school and says, finally, freedom from my Christian family and my straight-laced church, I get to do what I want to do. You see, this story's written a thousand times over, guys. We convince ourselves that we just might do better and even feel better without God in the front and center of our lives. And honestly, when I look deeply at this mindset, I got to be really honest with you as I want to do on a regular basis. I can relate to this. How about you? There have been plenty of times in my life where I have thought, geez, God is getting in the way of this. And so if God wasn't involved in this, I just might feel better, be able to do better. And even though I'm not thinking right at that time, I can relate to people who think like that. I spent the first 18 years of my life without a relationship with the Lord. And I can remember meeting born-again Christians, you know, uh, during my teenage years and thinking, these people are crazy. I, I mean, what, 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 a, what a joy killer, you know, they're involved in. I mean, they're, they're like going to church and Wednesday night prayer meetings and they're reading the Bible. I mean, how fun can that be? And I, I thought, you know, I'm the one having fun here. You know, I'm going out and getting drunk and engaging in illicit things and all that. And I mean, for 18 years, I thought that life was better without religion or spirituality or even God. But here's what's even more deceptive as, a, deceptive as I've been a Christian now for, what, 35 years, more than that. There have been times even as a follower of Jesus. Church people aren't immune to this, in which I think that life just might go a little bit better if I distance myself from God. And we're gonna move on here right now because, because what you simply need to see is that that by the very nature of it is rebellion. Some of you have never seen yourself as rebellious. What you might wanna take away from today is that there are times that you are. And as we're gonna see in a minute here, God's gonna extend amazing grace to you. He, he loves welcoming back prodigals, but you gotta first admit that you've been rebellious. 
Now, notice with me that this story moves on to a second part or a second movement. And this movement I'm going to call the returning the returning. So the first part of the movement is the rebellion. Now you have the returning. And look what Jesus goes on to say next as he tells this story. He says, now when he, the younger son, had spent everything, think of that casino, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. We'll get back to that in a minute. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine or pigs. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine or pigs were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger, and I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father. Now, there's a lot going on here, gang, and we are a little bit pressed for time today. But when you look closely at this second movement of the story, you'll notice two very significant turning points that, we, that are worth focusing on. The first, and I asked you to to look at that when I pointed it out, it occurs when this young man says in verse 14, it says of this young man, that he began to be in need. Remember that? He began to be in need. Here's what you need to know about need. Need always carries with it the capacity to wake us up and at least get us thinking about our priorities and options. In other words, when you have a rebellious prodigal, and this will be worth the weight in gold for some of you here today, need is a good thing. Amen? It's a good thing. And you're saying, well, why are you hammering that home so much, Jamie? Well, here's the problem in today's world, especially with our very soft view of parenting. Forgive me for saying that, but it's true. And that is that we're in the habit, and even many older baby boomers, we're in the habit of rescuing our children when they're in a rebellious place. In other words, they, they go off the deep end, they do stupid things, or as Neil likes to say, they take stupid pills and they make decisions that are not commensurate with God's value system, and they get in trouble, and lo and behold, there's mom and dad right there to rescue them. Because heaven forbid they'd be in pain, heaven forbid they'd be in need, and here's what happens many times when you do that. You are robbing them of what God wants to do next in their lives. Because that's the second significant thing going on here, gang, is that based on this guy's need, he, that Jesus says in verse 17 that he then came to his senses. Do you remember that there? So verse 14, he's in need. By verse 17, based on that need, he comes to his senses. And, and what a powerful, powerful thing. That word literally means senses, to come into consciousness about something. It views a guy who finally wakes up, who realizes not only what kind of foolish circumstances that he or she is in, but realizes that they need to take personal responsibility for it and do something about it. Wouldn't you want that for some of the lost prodigals around you? But it has to stem from need. 
people have to wallow just a little bit in the mess that they've created in order for them to wake up and come to their senses. And here's the cool thing that might put some of you at ease because it can be hard for you to be hands off of prodigals around you. God's in all of that. <laughs> and God's working his stuff in all of that. He just says, get out of the way and let me do what I do best. Because I'm in the business of helping lost prodigals find their way back home. But make that tie between need and coming to one's senses. Because it's fascinating. This son in our story here, as soon as he came to his senses, develops a plan on how he can make his way back home. As we're going to see in a second here, it's a terrible plan. It's a faulty plan. It's a plan based on this, this, this human sociological view of self-atonement and penance. He says, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to confess my sin and confess my unworthiness, and I'm going to ask him to make me like one of his hired men. Well, what a great plan in his mind this was. It's a really, he's shooting awfully low. I want you guys to know that. I mean, for a guy that wants to come home, um, when he says, I want to be like one of the hired men, this might be a rich understanding for you in Hebrew culture, but it says in our story here that this man had servants and hired men. Who do you think were better treated in the father's house, servants or hired men? It actually was servants. Because servants lived there full time. They had all their meals provided for them, shelter. They had security in this man's estate. Hired men came on at 9 in the morning, and they were done at 5. And if they said, hey, I'd like to stay out, nope. Get out. You're done. See you tomorrow at 9. That's what this young son is shooting for. He wants to become like one of the hired men. So right, we're going to move on here right now. He, he senses a need. He comes to his senses. He develops a plan of self-atonement. And we're now bumping up against the definition of what it means to return. And that is the returning is all about recognizing one's need backed up by some sort of repentance. That's really important for you to see in this story here. That, that, that this idea of need and coming to one's senses and then developing a plan, uh, Jesus is showing here that this guy is not just wallowing in his need because he's lost everything, but, but he's also willing to repent and, and, and come home. Now, now, here's where things get really dicey. As soon as I use that word repentance, that's a loaded word for Christians. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I hear Christians say all the time, well, so-and-so needs to repent. And I want to ask them at that moment, but many times I just don't want to get into it with them. Uh, you know, what exactly do you mean by repent? Because you see, when, when I'm using the word here that the return is all about recognizing one's need backed up by repentance... If you were to ask me, Jamie, what do you mean by repentance? I would have a very clear answer for you based on this story. So I'm glad you asked. Let me share with you that answer right now. Because this is rich in this story here. Jesus tells us what kind of repentance God is not looking for, that the Father is not looking for from this need-filled prodigal. He tells us here that, that he's not really interested in this prodigal's self-atonement plan. Do, do, do you pick up on that? Because as we're going to see in a second here, when the son finally comes home and he starts to rehearse his speech to the father and says, Father, I'd like to become like... The father cuts him off. 
and wants to hear none of that, he's actually going to turn to the servant and say, let's party. The son's never going to get through his self-atonement speech. So we learn from that 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 kind of repentance for a prodigal coming home, God is not interested in. He's not interested in penance, self-atonement plan. He's not interested in a prodigal saying, I'll never struggle again, I promise. He's not even interested in the prodigal saying, I'm going to pay all the money back. None of that is found in this story. So you're saying, what kind of repentance is he looking for then? Oh, that's the $10 question, gang. Here's what it is. Jesus is teaching us here that the primary mode of repentance that the Father wanted, and if this doesn't touch you, I got nothing else, is simply for the prodigal son to come home. He just wants the prodigal to turn, that's what the word repentance means, turn from the pig slop and start walking home. A pitiful mess, having nothing to offer, no self-atonement plan, no penance. You, you blew it all. You got nothing left. And just come empty-handed back home to the Father. That's what the Father is looking for. I, I love how Joel Green, one of the foremost authorities on the Gospel of Luke, who taught for years at Asbury Theological Seminary, says it in his commentary on Luke. This is so simple but so rich. He says the return is the repentance. Woe. And again, Christians try to mess with this equation so much. We say, well, no, you got to see a little bit something from the kid, right? No. I mean, God's going to eventually tell this kid, or the father's eventually going to tell the kid to get back to work on the farm. That's implicit in this story here. But that's not part of the return. The return is simply about coming back home, and the return, in a very real way, is the repentance. Or, or to put it candidly, what allowed the father, as we're going to see in just a second here, to receive the son back with so much grace? Don't miss this, gang. He simply came home. And that's what God is going to ask for some of you. That's all he asks of your rebellious neighbor, your rebellious son or daughter, your rebellious coworker. All he asks is that they come home, that they trust Jesus, place their faith in him and his forgiveness of their sin because they can't self-atone for their own sin. And that they come home by accepting Christ and receiving him. And once they do that, as Jesus has been telling us in this whole chapter, all of heaven rejoices. It's a humble heart that's sick of the, the pig slop and sick of trying to run their own lives. And finally says, uncle, I need God. I need the father. And begins to make their way back home. That's the return that matters most. And when this happens, a third and final piece of Jesus' story comes to fruition. It's what I simply call the receiving, and it's powerful. Because this is how Jesus wraps up this segment of the story. We're not going to look at the older son segment. We're going to end it here for time's sake, but this is a great wrap-up. It says, but while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's practicing his speech there. Uh, go on there. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. You know, there's a lot going on here with a, a, a Jewish and Greco-Roman history all behind it. But just notice here, and this is really easy for you to see, he's dressing this kid up like a prince, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's putting a nice ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and he's killing the fattened calf which was the calf that they were celebrating for that one, or saving for that one big celebration for the year. And so the father is basically saying, this is that celebration. And then he uses two word pictures to communicate what is happening in this moment of time. He says that my son was dead and has now come back to life. So it's a death life motif. And he says he was lost and has now been found. Two word pictures to show us the heart of the Father. And you're saying, well, what's he getting at here? Here's what it is, gang. And this is so powerful. This rocked Jesus' entire world when he told this initial story. And it's why it's the most pop popular story he's ever told. And that is that what the Father is communicating here, just based on the return, is full acceptance and full restoration. Chuck Swindoll calls this the scandal of grace. <laughs> That when you finally understand the grace that the Father is exhibiting here, there's a part of you that wants to say, no way. Nobody functions like that. I mean, if this was my kid coming home, yeah, I'd be glad, but I'd say, you know what? Let me tell you what you did over the last few months. And you know what? You ain't getting your inheritance back, and I'm glad you're home, and I'm going to elevate you a little bit higher than a hired man, but you know what? You're getting that bedroom, not the old one you used to have, and you're going to start here and do that. And, and then your wife's saying, honey, honey, no, no, leave me alone, Agnes. You know, I'm going to, no, 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 you know. And you're all over it. I mean, that's the way most normal people would function. But in Jesus' story, it's, it's, just, it's almost ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, we don't have time to look at it, but it's why the older son's going to be so mad. He's going to go, wait, this kid's getting off easy. And he's missing the whole point. And if you dare think like that, you're missing the whole point because what Jesus is trying to say here, because this isn't about a kid and a father and a Jewish household and all this. This is about God and us. And what he's trying to say is, is that all of you are massively rebellious. I mean, since the time of Adam and Eve, humankind has gone their own way. Every child is born with a fallen DNA inside him or her that is selfish, even wicked, and wants to do their own thing. You know, we define rebelliousness in terms of morality, like somebody's rebellious, as I often say, if they're Howard Stern or Mick Jagger or Madonna or something like that. But you see, God defines rebelliousness, as we've seen, in simply going your own way and distancing yourself from him. So here's the scandal of God's definition of rebelliousness. There are a lot of moral, rebellious people out there today. 
People are living in Scottsdale and PV or East Lansing, and they're, and they're, and they're doing their thing, and, and, and they're living very successful and outwardly moral lives. They're, they're raising semi-good kids. They're, they're having successful businesses, all these other things. They got a nice little nest egg for retirement, and all the while, they're doing every bit of it without God. And I say it like that because inwardly, that's their mindset. I, I can do better, thank you. I don't need God. I, I, I made a, a good, good life just without him. Why would I need him? And all the while, God in heaven is saying, I'm the maker of your very soul. I'm the giver of every blessing you have. And, and you're raising your fist at me or quietly defying me? See, that's how God defines rebellion. So there's a lot of moral, rebellious people in this world. And, and, and God says that those moral, rebellious people need to come home to him. And if they would just make the return home and, and, and believe and trust in God's provision for them, the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ, that then here's the scandal, is that full reception, full acceptance, even full restoration to the rights of sonship or daughtership can be theirs. See, that's what Jesus is doing in this story. Don't miss this, gang. I know it's a lot to take in. But the reason that Jesus makes it clear that the father elevates the son to his rightful status is because that's precisely what God wants to do for you. That the moment you come home, way before you've changed your life around, way before you get to work back on the farm, way before you do anything that would show you really mean it, God says, I elevate you to the rightful place as my son based on what Jesus Christ did for you and your return home. In other words, and with this we're done, what this last movement shows us is that God is all about a profound move of grace. He's about a profound move of grace, that the return is enough, that for those who come home to him in Jesus, it's enough. And that's what the next few weeks in our church is gonna be about. That's why I've asked you to take me seriously in this next series we're doing called Identity Theft because we're gonna do a series that I think your lost friends, your rebellious friends, will be warm to. I really do, because we're gonna talk about how we've been mugged by the mirror in our image-based society, how we've been pickpocketed by our past when it comes to some of the things we've been through and, 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 and how we, we've been, have our success has stolen our identity from us. And we're gonna make it very practical, very biblical, and then we're going to end just before Thanksgiving talking about how it can all be returned by Jesus. But there is one thing that we need to do today in the couple minutes we have remaining before we go into next weekend. And that is that we need to do some in-house business right now. You ready for this? I asked you in the beginning of our time together today that Jesus was going to challenge you to identify with one of two characters. By now you know who those characters are. He's going to ask you to identify either with the lost son or with the receptive, grace-filled father. And I want you to do that right now. I want you to pretend, as I've said a few times over the years, I want you to pretend that you and I are alone. We're having a cup of coffee at your favorite haunt. We're sitting across one of those high-top tables just talking. And I ask you in a tender moment, based on today's discussion, are you the son or are you the father? Right now, who are you at? I mean, even if you're saved already, like you say, well, I came home years ago, but, but have you wandered again? 
Have you distanced yourself from God? Are you the son right now? Or are you the father? Because what I want to do here in just a second is I'm going to ask every head to be bowed, cactus and venue and chapel, even those of you online, I'm going to ask every head to be bowed. And I want you to, to own before God who you are right now. And then I'm going to pray with you a prayer to, to, to help you deal with who you are right now. I warn you, if you're a lost son or daughter right now, I'm going to pray a prayer that's going to help you come home. Because we all need to come home before next weekend, amen? We need to be home. I, I, I mean, we're going to deal with your lost friends and neighbors over the next few weeks, but I'm not counting on you being one of them. So, so today is the day for, for you to come home if you haven't come home yet. I'm going to pray with you to do that in a second here. And then I'm going to pray for those of you who are the waiting fathers, that God would keep you in that place of grace. Al, that he'd keep you there and, and that you would know that, that God has placed you in a primo, prime position to, to give strength to your church, strength to the kingdom as one who can join God in welcoming lost sons and daughters home. You have a key role to play. Your attitude, your grace means everything. Believe me, when we start bringing more lost people into this place over the next few weeks, <laughs> they're gonna feel right away whether this is a place of grace or not. Here's the good news, we are, but your attitude will make all the difference, so we're gonna pray for that. I want every head bowed right now, please, here and at the campuses and venues, every head bowed, every eye closed, please don't look up, this is just between you and God. I, I'm bowed and closed-eyed with you, and let's address God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are to us. We thank you, as we've talked about today, that you are not just the maker of our souls, the creator of our very lives, sovereign over all, but you are also so very intimate and very close to every action of our lives. As Jesus taught us, every hair on our head is numbered, every sparrow that falls to the ground you know about. And Father, with that kind of intimacy in tow, uh, we understand now, Lord, the the power of rebellion, and that when we rebel against you, it creates distance, and there's a return that needs to be made home. And Father, there's some here today that are owning, in, in a good way, that they're a lost son or daughter, whether maybe for all of their lives being lost, or God, even over the last few years, as once followers of Jesus, they've strayed. There's distance between them and you, and it's a man-made distance, not a God-made distance. And they're ready to come home. And so, Lord, here's the prayer they pray. Oh, God, I want to come home. I want to return to you, and I want to return to the place of safety where your word is revered, where your truth is honored, where your grace is received, where the forgiveness of Jesus and his cross are central to my life. And Lord, where I sit right now, I come home, I believe in my heart of hearts, and I turn toward you and I take steps toward you, and I thank you that you receive me as a prodigal coming home. And I thank you, God, that time and time again, seven times 70, you're willing to do this for me, and I come home to you now. Father, I pray that anybody that prays that prayer today, that they would not take that lightly, that they would have assurance as they walk out of here today that that intimacy gap has been closed, that it's been made, and that they're now closer to you than when they walked in here today. And Lord, may they continue in that mode even throughout this week. Father, I pray for the rest of us who um, have 
clearly uh, remained on the farm and stayed close to you through our obedience, our faith, our, our trust in you, our willingness to use our time, talents, and treasures in your service. I pray, God, that as we're in that sweet spot right now, that, God, we would never become pharisaical. We'd never become like that older brother who stayed on the farm, angry and resentful, judgmental and self-righteous. But that, Father, we would be humble followers of you. And that, Lord, we'd share in the joy of the angels over the next few months here at our church as we engage together in concerted effort to reach out to those in our community who don't know Jesus. And, God, I pray that as we see what you do, that, God, you... Uh, would, would continue to give us joy as we share in your joy. May we be the Father who shares in the joy of reception. God, I thank you for 10 amazing years. We pray that you continue to sustain us, use us, correct us when needed, guide us in the way everlasting, we pray. In Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.